I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there ought to be one under your seat or under the seat in front of you. And open it to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Whoa. All right. Boy. Uh, my, my, uh, two of my daughters were invited to a, uh, a birthday party yesterday at a trampoline park. And, uh, and so I, uh, begrudgingly went along and, uh, and was forced to jump on the trampolines with them. Um, I, I, I enjoy trampoline parks. They're kind of fun. I, it's not a thing that I ever thought I would enjoy, but I find myself enjoying them. However, here's the thing. In my lifetime, I have rolled both of my ankles really badly. Never broken anything or torn anything too bad, I don't think. But I've, but I've twisted. I've rolled them over really bad. So I'm always kind of sketchy about um, jumping and, and the potential for coming down at a bad angle. I'm also approaching that age where things in your body just spontaneously explode, you know, without any warning. Um, so uh, every time I go to a trampoline park, I always do so with a little bit of excitement, but also a lot of trepidation because you never know when you might come down and, and your ACL and MCL and LCL and all the other CLs in your knee just, you know, all at once coordinate an explosion and you have to be carried out on a stretcher. Me going to a trampoline park is probably a, uh, how, how several of us feel when we come to the book of Revelation. This is going to be exciting, but it could get ugly. <laughs> Nothing really raises eyebrows and anxiety among Christians quite like the word Revelation. Already at seeing the title screen for this sermon series, your blood pressure is up. Your stomach is tightening. Your interest is piqued. Or perhaps you're racking up a defense of your eschatological position and interpretation of the millennium. Already some of you are trying to figure out if I'm premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial. The rest of you are wondering what in the world millennials and all of their participation trophies have to do with Revelation. I'm really glad some of you got that joke. And probably all of you are asking yourselves, why in the world would Stephen choose to preach a sermon through such a controversial, quizzical, deeply symbolic, confusing book as Revelation? Why would you do this to yourself and to us, Pastor? Um, I have two reasons, and neither, are them ha- neither of them have anything to do with COVID. The first reason, the first reason... That, that I have uh, uh, desired and planned to preach through Revelation over the course of the next many weeks is that, first of all, it's part of God's Word. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and 17, Paul says to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, uh, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Revelation is part of God's word, breathed out by God. It is for our edification as believers that we might be all the more prepared, all the more ready to do what Christ has called us to do in his name. That's reason number one. Reason number two, I want for us to rejoice together as a church. Rejoice in our knowledge of God's clear and sufficient and necessary and authoritative word for his people, including Revelation. Now, there's reason number three that doesn't make the top two. That's why it's number three. But reason number three is I've known a lot of pastors who have never preached through Revelation, and they've been in ministry a long, long time. 
I don't want to be that guy. So I'll just get Revelation now out of the way relatively early in my ministry. And then when people ask, when are you going to preach on Revelation? I'll just say, I already did. Go listen to the, to the sermons. This morning we uh, will be in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It's kind of the introduction to the rest of the book. And, uh, and it's not going to be nearly as entertaining maybe as some of you think. Uh, but it's a good introduction to the... We don't get into a whole lot of the symbology or symbolism. We don't get into a whole lot of the, uh, uh, the, the really intense sort of cycles of trumpets and bowls and seals and that kind of thing yet. No, we just have a, a general introduction to this uh, text today. But this introduction is important because it sets the tone, it sets the theme for the rest of the book. The first eight verses of Revelation help us as followers of Jesus to know how to read the rest of Revelation, what to keep in mind, and maybe what not to obsess about. It helps us to remember what is the main point of this book. And this is the main idea of our text today, which is the main, or the main idea of the sermon today, which is the main idea of the text today, which is this, rejoice. Rejoice. Christ our King is coming. Rejoice. Christ our King is coming. And this is the lens through which we ought to read the rest of, of this book. Right? So we're going to keep this at the forefront of our minds as we work together over the next several weeks. This morning, as we see this uh, and the main purpose, uh, the main theme of Revelation here, Rejoice, Christ our King is coming. As we see this clearly in the text today, I, I would encourage us that, that over the next many weeks that we work hard together to read Revelation well, to read it rightly, so that we might reap the blessing of obeying it, so that we might be recipients of the kind of joy that is promised to those who listen and uh, who, who read and hear and keep this word, knowing that Christ is coming for his church. Now, before we get into the text, I want to uh, give uh, reference uh, or recommend two resources to you that have been helpful to me over the last several weeks in reading. Uh, these are not big books. These are relatively small books. They're both accessible. So uh, to, to just about anybody of any sort of educational background or whatever, you don't have to have a seminary degree to understand what's going on in these books. And both of them are relatively recent. They're both published in, uh, within the last year, or actually the last six months. The first one is called The Joy of Hearing. That's this purple book by Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner is a, a, a professor at one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. Uh, the Joy of Hearing, it's a theology of the book of Revelation. So he's going to take uh, a look at kind of broad theological themes that work through the book of Revelation. Very helpful, very encouraging. I love this book. The second book is one that, uh, that I would recommend if you're, um, if you're wanting to get more into the how do I read this book well. Uh, and this is a book that was just published, I think, in December. It's called Reading the Book of Revelation, Five Principles uh, for Interpretations by Alexander Stewart. Uh, Alexander Stewart is, is uh, also a faculty member at another one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. Uh, this one just came out like in the last couple of months. And so as I've been working through it, I've really enjoyed it. And actually, uh, his five principles for interpretation are going to come into play in just these first few verses that we have this morning. So if you're interested uh, by those principles for reading and interpreting uh, this book, go, go pick up a copy of this book or of this book. Uh, if you're on Amazon uh, and you can get it within two days, you might want to do both and uh, maybe find some other other people to read along and be encouraged by that. You'll note that in all the books that I have recommended, not a one of them is part of the Left Behind series. That's on purpose. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed, but it's also not a joke. Rejoice. Christ our King is coming. 
Let's stand together as we honor God by reading his word. Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8. Already we're off to a great start, don't you think? The Apostle John, the disciple of Jesus, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Rejoice, rejoice, Christ our King is coming. As we approach this really wonderful book of Scripture, hard to read, yes, difficult at at times, sure, but wonderful book of Scripture to read, we see first of all, and we want to look first of all at the purpose of Revelation, the point of this book, what God through His servant John is saying to His people. As this book opens, we are told in verse 1 that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It was given to Jesus Uh, the Son of God, by God the Father, we read, in order to deliver to John the Apostle, who himself uh, says he was an eyewitness to the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Very likely this uh, book was written after John the Apostle had received this vision from the Lord while John was in exile on the island of Patmos near the end of the reign of the emperor Diocletian. Uh, This was during... uh, I'm sorry, is that Diocletian? I just all of a sudden had a, a terrible fear that I have named the wrong emperor. Tom, help me out. Diocletian or Domitian? Domitian, sorry. I knew that that was not right. There we go. Domitian, not Diocletian. At the end of the first century, uh, uh, Domitian reigned between 81 and 96 AD. Uh, most scholars agree that, uh, that John probably had this vision and wrote Revelation sometime around maybe 94 or 95 AD as an old man. But what sort of book is this that we're reading? Well, the first verse says that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. What does that sound like in English? Apocalypse. What is an apocalypse? Not what you think. Most of the time we say the word apocalypse and we think of of like this cataclysmic, catastrophic end to life on earth as it is with zombies and monsters and comets and asteroids, right? That's usually what we think of when we think of the word apocalypse. You might even think of, never mind, that word, the, that movie title is Armageddon, not Apocalypse, with Bruce Willis and, and Ben Affleck. It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. 
That word revelation comes from the word apocalypsis, which we have that English cognate apocalypse, but an apocalypse is not, it's not that horrible, nasty, ugly picture of the end of all things. The Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get our English word apocalypse, means revealing. It means disclosing. When John begins this, le- this book by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's not saying this horrible, catastrophic, cataclysmic end to all things that Jesus talked about. No, an apocalypse is a revealing. Revelation, that's why it's called revelation. It's a revealing. It's a pulling back of the cosmic curtain, so to speak, to reveal spiritual realities behind ongoing events in the life of the church. It is to, to show the church, God showing his people what's going on in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm, in ways that are impacting and even intertwined with what's going on in this physical world. We're also told in verse 3 that this book is a prophecy. Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy, John says. A prophecy can have two understandings in the biblical sense. It can have uh, uh, the sense of foretelling prophecy in, in, in the sense of saying what is going to happen, speaking about future events that have not yet taken place. That happens sometimes in the Old Testament. Most of the time, though, prophecy is a foretelling. It is a saying the truth of God to his people or to those that, that God has directed it to. In this way, a prophecy, we could most generally uh, uh, define it as a true word from the Lord for his people. So this revelation is a true word from the Lord for his people. It's also, as we see in verse uh, 4, and particularly in chapters 2 and 3, a letter. John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So it's, a, it's an apocalypse. It's a revealing of spiritual realities behind ongoing events in the life of the church. It's a prophecy. That is to say, it's a true word from the Lord for his people to be heard and obeyed. And it's a letter that would have been passed around, circulated among seven churches in the area of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So that's what kind of book this is. And it's, it's altogether really different from most other books of Scripture that we have because it's combining those Three things, apocalyptic literature, prophecy, and a letter, sort of all wrapped up in one. In light of all that, and trying to understand what kind of book it is that we're reading, do not miss the purpose of this book, the purpose of Revelation that John states clearly in verse 3. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." Blessed. That word, blessed are those, or blessed is the one, may in your mind take you back to Matthew chapter 5, then Beatitudes as Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and uh, the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the persecuted, on and on. That word blessed means joyful are those. Uh, happy is sometimes the, the way that the word behind that word blessed is translated, but it doesn't quite encapsulate what, what that word blessed really means. It, means. it means joy that comes from the knowledge of God and the salvation that he gives. That's what it means to be blessed. Joyful in the knowledge of God and the salvation that he gives are those who read aloud these words, who hear what is in them, and who keep them. This same blessing, blessed are those who keep the words, is repeated near the end of Revelation as well. Revelation 22, verse 7 says, uh, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So here we have this, this pronouncement of blessing at the beginning, 
and almost an identical pronouncement of blessing at the end of Revelation. Do you think, do you think John is intending us to catch something here? Yes, absolutely. He's framing the, the whole, all of the content of Revelation with this promise of blessing for those who obey. These identical blessings at the front and at the back end of Revelation frame the whole of this book to set it in its rightful context uh, what, that is the, the body of visions and everything else that's in the middle. These promises of blessing for those who obey are, are meant to set apart or set in contrast what is there in the middle and to help us understand what is in the middle. Frames, if you've spent time in many art museums, you, you know that those who put the artwork on the wall diligently select frames that complement, in particular ways, the the painting or the photograph or whatever is in the middle. There's a whole art form to frame selection for for pieces of art in in a building because the frame around a piece can can either help or hurt what's in the middle. And and so in the same way that frames are meant to complement or highlight or contrast in some helpful way the content of art that they surround, so also Frames in literature like we have in Revelation. Blessed are those who keep the words. Blessed are those who keep the words. Those, that, that frame in literature helps us to understand what's in the middle and understand what sort of lens through which we should see what is in the middle. This framing device, blessed are those who keep the words because Christ is coming soon, helps us as the readers of Revelation to understand the purpose of the book itself. Here's the purpose. The purpose of Revelation, dear friends is to inspire obedient perseverance for the church in the midst of trial. That's why this book is in our Bibles. There's no, no mystery about that. It's pretty clear, isn't it? You don't have to do theological or, or, or exegetical backflips to figure that out. The purpose of Revelation is to inspire obedient perseverance for the church in the midst of trial. Uh, Alexander Stewart, again, a plug for this book, super helpful. He says this well. He says, Revelation is neither a complicated book of doctrine nor a detailed timetable of future events. Its primary goal is not to give precise information about events that will unfold right before the end of the world. This is not to say that Revelation does not contain theology or does not describe future events. It certainly does both. But neither is its primary purpose. Revelation is primarily a book of motivation. The goal of reading Revelation, its purpose is to be encouraged, to be motivated, to be inspired as beleaguered, persecuted, poor, and weak Christians to conquer sin and the forces of evil with the confidence that the risen Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, is returning to make all things new. Rejoice, Christ our King is coming. Now this leads us to the first principle for reading and interpreting the book of Revelation. So we're going to do two things today. We're going to explain the text, but I'm also going to give you five principles for reading and interpreting the text. And again, these five principles aren't mine. I'm borrowing them from someone much smarter than me. Principle number one, when you're reading the book of Revelation, remember the original purpose. What is the original purpose? Motivation, inspiration for obedient perseverance. Remember the original purpose. John here in these first verses is sure to tell us that Jesus has not pulled back the curtain of the cosmos to reveal spiritual realities behind our daily circumstances just for our entertainment. Nor has he done so to inspire imaginative works of fiction to get us on the New York Times bestseller list. 
Neither is Revelation written to give us an endlessly long puzzle to decipher to keep us busy until Jesus figures out what to do with humanity. This revelation, this pulling back of the cosmic curtain, has been given by Jesus to John in order to spur Christians on toward loving, peaceful obedience to Jesus no matter what's going on in the world. Remember this, friend, and do not depart from it. This is the purpose of this book. Remember it. We've seen the purpose of Revelation, which is to persevere in obedience until Christ comes. So let's look second from verses 4 and following in our text at the person of our obedience. Who is the one that we are obeying? Here in these verses, 4 through 8, John gives a, a fairly clear description, blessing to, blessing from, the one who gives these words, the one that we are to obey. In verse 4, as we noted already, this reminds us that Revelation is a letter sent to seven churches in Asia. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. These churches are uh, in, in these cities in Asia, and we'll see as we work through chapters 2 and 3, they kind of start in the uh, um, southwest corner of Asia Minor, Minor and work their way uh, clockwise uh, over the other, other direction. These seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and we'll look at all of those churches in due time. It's immediately, John reminding us that this is also a letter that's going to circulate among these churches, reminds us of principle number two for interpreting. Principle number two for interpreting Revelation is this. Remember the original context. Purpose number one, or principle number one, remember the original purpose. Principle number two, remember the original context. It is important for us to remember as we read Revelation that it was initially addressed to these historic churches. There were real gatherings of real Christians in these seven cities in Asia Minor. Revelation was written for us Christians, understand that. But it was primarily written to the first century church. We are not the first people to read this book. We are not the first people to read the content in it. And neither were we meant to be. We are not, we are its audience... But we are not its first audience. The same principle of biblical interpretation that we practice everywhere else in Scripture applies to Revelation as well. The text of Revelation, hear this and you may want to write it down. The text of Revelation cannot mean anything to us that it could not have meant to its original readers. I'll say that one more time. Revelation, because you need to know it. Revelation cannot mean anything to us today that it could not have meant to its original readers. Okay, It doesn't change meaning over time. It, it, it may change in its application to our lives, how we incorporate the meaning of the text to our lives over time because historical circumstances change, but the meaning of the text never changes. The purpose of Revelation has always been to inspire, to motivate the saints of Jesus Christ for faithful, peaceful endurance until the end. It's never been anything other than that. And by the way, any interpretation of any of the symbols within the context of Revelation that could only have significance for a 21st century audience are probably the kinds of things that we should run far from when we come to Revelation. Things like implanted computer microchips in your wrist are not anything that could have been anywhere near the conceptualization of the first century audience. So already we should dispense with crazy things like Apache helicopters. We're not in the imagination of the first century readers of this text. And so we start importing all of these strange technological uh, interpretations or, 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 or reference of symbols into 
uh, into Revelation, and already we've, we've lost our way. So principle number one, remember the original purpose. Principle number two, remember the original context. In this way, remembering the original context and, and remembering that Revelation cannot mean anything to us that it could not have meant to its, to its first readers attempts to decode revelation to find some secret meaning never before understood is to imply somehow that God's word did not have sufficient or significant meaning to the church until this age when we who are smarter have figured it out. Remember the old maxim. If it's true, it probably isn't new. And if it's new, it probably isn't true. And that applies particularly with interpretations of this book. If it's something that the original audience would have no way of connecting to spiritually or personally, friends, it may not be true. Now, right after John addresses the churches in verse 4, he gives them a greeting. It's a common greeting that we see all over the place in the New Testament, common in letters. It's a greeting of grace and peace, which is a greeting of God's favor and and a greeting of, of the wholeness that God gives to those who belong to him. And this greeting of grace and peace of God's favor and wholeness comes directly from the one who is the person of our obedience, the one that we follow. It is first from God the Father. John says grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Oh, we even we sang this at least a couple of times in, in a couple of the songs that we sang this morning. By the way, you'll, you'll notice it was crazy, Pastor Danny. I'm just going, man, all of these songs, so many of the songs that we have in, the, in the, like our regular rotation of singing and our, our sort of curated hymnal, if you will, have so, so many of them have roots to revelation or connections to revelation. Just, it'll, it will blow your mind in time. Grace and peace from him who was, who is and who was and who is to come. This is obviously a reference to God the Father based upon the divine name given by God, the Lord, to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses was greeted there by God at the burning bush and God commanded him to go to the Israelites to, or, or to the Hebrews before uh, they would be delivered out of the land of Egypt and Moses said, who should I tell them has sent me? And God says, tell them I am, has sent, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you to them. That uh, name, I am, comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is uh, some sort of formulation of the verb to be in Hebrew. Him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come. It's a reference to the eternal God, the God who always is. Grace and peace from the one that we obey, God the Father, who is eternal. This leads us to principle number three for interpretation. Principle number one, remember the original purpose. Principle number two, remember the original context. Principle number three, pay attention to repetition. The descriptions attributed to God, who was, who is, who is to come, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, are repeated all throughout the text of Revelation. God is regularly referred to by these names. And we do well, friends, to catch on to them and to pay attention. How do you learn anything in life? As my youth minister would say, repetition, repetition, repetition. So when things are repeated in the text, what ought we to do? Pay attention. But there are other repetitious things in Revelation, not just the name of God. There are events that seem to repeat themselves. There are symbols that show up multiple times in Revelation. 
As we look through the book, we'll see several similarly described catastrophes and several similarly described contrasting conquerings by Christ, who is also called the Lamb. Repetition is a a literary device that is used to capture the attention and drive a point home to those who are reading it. In the context of Revelation, the nearly parallel repetitions of events that occur in the series of seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath all seem to indicate a process of what some scholars call recapitulation, or if I can say it this way, spiraling upward through Revelation. We, we, we kind of roll around and we see the same events described multiple different times as we work ourselves through this vision uh, or as John works us or takes us through this vision that he received. Recapitulation, repetition. It's a way of saying the same thing over and over again, but maybe slightly differently. So where the text repeats itself, we do well to listen. That's principle number three. But back to the person of our obedience. Uh, John gives greeting and blessing from God the Father, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And he gives greeting from God the Holy Spirit. We see this in uh, uh, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who was was and is to come and the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, friends, understand this is most certainly, the seven spirits, a reference to the Holy Spirit. The same reference to the seven spirits is also given in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 6. And in every place there, uh, every, every other time that seven spirits are mentioned, the seven spirits before the throne or the seven spirits that go out through the world, the obvious connection to that is the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a strange way of describing the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Which leads us to principle number four. Mind the symbols. Principle number one, remember the original purpose. Principle number two, remember the original context. Principle number three, pay attention to repetition. By the way, I'm repeating these principles. You might want to pay attention to that. (laughs) Principle number four, mind the symbols. Pay attention to the symbols. Already we are getting a foretaste of the heavily symbolic nature of Revelation and its symbolic use of numbers in particular. Several things appear in sevens, in groups of seven in Revelation. There are seven churches, there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, there are seven bowls. There are potentially seven signs that occur between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. We'll get there. And of course there are the seven spirits. Seven carries the symbolic value of completion and perfection. In this way, the seven spirits before the throne symbolize the complete and perfect spirit of God. The presence here of that term, seven spirits, sandwiched between clear references to God the Father and God the Son, most assuredly leads us to understand this to be a symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit of God. Revelation is heavily symbolic. Even in my notes, I have put that word heavily in bold, italics, and underlined. It is heavily symbolic symbolic. It drips with symbolism. Numbers, figures, images, individuals, objects. All throughout the book of Revelation, the purpose of these symbols, friends, understand, is not to create for us some strange message to decode. That's not why this book is so symbolic. Like like John is writing in top secret decoder ring kind of language that only certain people with certain insight can figure out. That's not what he's doing. Symbols are used to engage our hearts in the message of Revelation as well as our minds. Symbols engage our hearts as well as our minds. Next week, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, 
which, is, uh, which there John gives a description of the appearance of Jesus, uh, the risen Lamb, the risen Savior before him. And that picture of Jesus is bold, italicized, underlined, heavily symbolic. In that picture, he has, he has hair that is, that is like white as snow, eyes that flash like lightning. He has a sword that comes out of his mouth. Friends, if that's not symbolic, I don't know what is. But this picture, this symbolic description of Jesus, the risen Savior, is not meant to, to cause us to look at it and, and be so confused. Like, what in the world is John talking about? What the heck is going on here? Why does Jesus look so weird? The purpose of this symbolic description of Jesus, the risen Savior, is to engage our hearts, to, to cause us to fall to our knees in worship of this one who comes in glory, to humble ourselves in the presence of his divine power, to, to take caution that we not disobey his word, which comes from his mouth like a sharp two-edged sword. Right? Symbols engage our hearts as well as our minds. So the symbols that John uses all throughout Revelation, friends, are, are, are not meant to be read like symbols in a Dan Brown novel or in, even in the Left Behind novel series. We're supposed to read these symbols similarly to how we read like poetry. Poetry is full of figurative language and imagery all the time, which is meant to engage our hearts as well as our minds. Uh, we saw some really interesting figurative uh, uh, language and, and imagery being used in Song of Solomon a couple of months ago when we worked our way through that. And some of those symbols are like, that's kind of weird. I don't really get it. But, uh, you know, but we'll press into the original context a little bit to understand what those symbols could have meant to those who read it first. We go, okay, that engages my heart too, right? It's, it's one thing for the, the writer of the Song of Solomon to say, I really love my wife. She's beautiful. It's another thing for him to say, your hair is like a flock of goats and your tower like the, like the tower of David. I know it sounds weird, but, right? but to say that your lips drip with honey, right? I mean, these are strange, strange symbols. If he's literally describing his, his bride, his wife, she's a funky looking chick. But we know that that's not what he's doing. He's not literally describing his wife. He's speaking figuratively about her appearance. Why? Because he wants to engage her heart and he wants to engage our hearts in his description of who she is. Mind the symbols. This will become especially important when we consider symbols like or symbolic descriptions of Jesus appearing to John uh, next week, as we'll see in chapter 1 but also all the other images that your mind probably went to but first, even before this glorious image of Jesus. Symbols like the beast and the harlot and the woman and the dragon and the giant cube that's lowered down from heaven that is called the New Jerusalem. When we come to these symbols, we need to read them symbolically. We need to engage our hearts to understand what is God through his servant John? How is he trying to engage my heart? Not just what I think about what's going to happen, but how I feel about what's taking place. How is this symbol meant to encourage me for faithful obedience to Christ in the midst of all the crazy stuff that may be going on in my life? How do these symbols engage my heart? How am I supposed to respond viscerally or emotionally in, in, in response to what I'm learning mentally about what is taking place? The person of our obedience is God the Father, who was and is and is to come. God the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits that are before the throne. And the one that we obey is also God the Son, Jesus Christ. John gives blessing to the church 
from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth, he says. So we've talked about God the Father, God the Spirit, now God the Son. Now the Son of God is included as the one who gives grace and peace to the church as they read this revelation. This completes the triune picture. One God in three persons, co-existing, uh, co-eternally existing in majesty and glory altogether. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. It's interesting that the Spirit is sandwiched between the Son and the Father. Normally we say Father, Son, Spirit, but here John says Father, Spirit, Son. But what we learn about the Son, Jesus Christ, is that He's the faithful witness in the sense that He proclaimed the gospel in His earthly ministry and that He is the very Word of God. As John says in John in the prologue to His gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, He's the Word of God who takes on flesh and reveals the glory of God to humanity. He's a witness to the character of the Father. He's the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he is the first to be raised from the dead and glorified, never to die again. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, as we read in Colossians 1, verse 18. He is the ruler of the kings on earth, John says. Interestingly enough, the Roman Caesars, Roman emperors in those days, were often referred to as the ruler of kings on earth. So John is not just saying something about Jesus' sovereignty. He's also making a theological statement against the emperor of Rome. The ruler of kings on earth, he says this in a way that foreshadows Christ's coming title as king of kings and lord of lords, a title that goes all the way back to Psalm verse, uh, chapter 87 and, Reve- and forward to Revelation 17 and Revelation 19. John the Apostle is sure to note, and we should as well, that Jesus is not waiting to reign as King of Kings. Friends, He is already. Whether the kings of the earth recognize Him as such or not, He is already King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Blessing to you, grace and peace to you from the ruler of kings on earth. Not the one who's coming to rule, but the one who rules now, even over kings on earth. After blessing the church from the triune God, God gives glory in, or John gives glory to the triune God through the Son, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. And now, glory be to God through Jesus Christ. Why? Well, Jesus deserves praise. He deserves glory because, first of all, as John says in the second part of verse 5, He is our deliverer. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Apart from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, friends, we have no hope of forgiveness for our sins. We have no hope of freedom from sin. We have no way to be right with God and free from the constant pull of our rebellious hearts away from God. Apart from Jesus dying, we have no freedom from that. We're still chained in our sins. Praise be to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. This harkens back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, when the author of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The realization that, that our sin incurs God's righteous wrath against us for rebelling against His divine authority. And that because the wages of sin is death, for there to be freedom from sin, a death must occur in our place as a substitute. Jesus deserves praise because He's our deliverer. Friend, is He your deliverer? Jesus deserves praise because he's our great high priest and king. Verse 6 says, uh, Praise to him who made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Jesus is the great high priest and king who enlists his people to carry on his ministry. He has made us a kingdom and priests to his God, to God the Father. Perhaps your mind is already returning to another place in the Old Testament where this language of kingdom and priests is used. Perhaps in your mind you've gone back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where that language first appears, where right after Moses has uh, served God by delivering the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God gathers his people around the, mount, uh, around the foot of Mount Sinai, and he says to them that if they'll obey his commands, he will make them a holy, uh, a holy nation and a royal priest priesthood, kingdom, a kingdom of priests. Jesus makes his people a kingdom and priests because he is the king of kings and he is our great high priest, the one who intercedes to the father on our behalf. Note here the church in in the course of revelation, this will be important. The church of Jesus Christ, Christians do not replace Israel. They don't replace ethnic Israel, but rather the church of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the global covenant blessing from God to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, that God would bless the nations of the world through Abraham and through his offspring. We're told, as Paul says in, uh, in Galatians, that Jesus is that offspring of Christ, the, or offspring of Abraham, the fulfillment of God's promise to him. And through Christ, all of the nations are blessed. How? With salvation, with the gospel. And so the church of Jesus Christ, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles who have trusted Jesus as Messiah, is not the new Israel, but the true Israel. All those who belong to God's Messiah, who comes through the people of Israel by faith in him, are God's true Israel. So we should not read the church as replacing Israel. We see the church, the global church of Jesus Christ, made up of ethnic Israelites and faithful Jews, Uh, uh, who have come to see Christ as Messiah, and Gentiles who have come to Christ as Lord, all those who come to faith in Jesus, whether they be Jew or Gentile, are the true Israel. They are the true people of God. He's our great high priest who makes us a kingdom and priests to God to bless the world with the word of salvation. And Jesus deserves praise, the object of our obedience. He deserves praise because he's coming publicly in power and in victory. This is the point of verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Coming on the clouds is imagery that John has borrowed from Daniel's vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. It's a picture of one who is coming in total divine power over all the cosmos. Jesus uses the imagery for himself in Matthew chapter 16 to speak of his powerful reign following his resurrection from the dead. That every eye will see him and look on him, with, uh, look on him whom they have pierced, and all the tribes will be wailing at his appearance, recalls the prophet Zechariah in chapters 12 and 13. And there the vision of God's salvation that brings about the repentance of many. Wailing is not necessarily sorrow over judgment here, but sorrow that leads to repentance. Some who see Christ even see him now today coming on clouds with glory in the sense that he rules and reigns over all things and I am subject to his divine power and sovereignty and I am also the object of his love and grace. Seeing Jesus should cause us to wail over our sin and sorrow and repentance and trust in him as Lord. This is the person of our obedience. The one who blesses us 
as we keep the words that He has given. God the Father, Spirit and Son, whose word we are to read aloud and pay attention to and obey. Why? Because He's the eternal, perfect, all-powerful God of the universe and the author of our redemption from sin in Jesus Christ. He's the focus of our attention in Revelation. He is the guide of our interpretation of this book. When He speaks, we listen. And as we listen, we obey. Why? Because He's promised joy and victory in Jesus when we do. Blessed is the one who keeps the words that are written in this. This leads us to the fifth principle for interpretation. Principle number one, remember the original purpose. Principle number two, remember uh, the original context. Purpose number three, pay attention to repetition. Uh, Principle number four, mind the symbols. Principle number five, keep an eye on the bigger picture. Keep an eye on the bigger picture. Already in just these short verses, we've seen a number of Old Testament and New Testament references. In fact, as uh, one commentator has noted, he did the counting, so I don't have to. Revelation has 285 Old Testament citations and and, and over 550 Old Testament allusions. The book of Revelation is, is sopping wet with Old Testament imagery and references. Revelation is a book that is heavily dependent upon the whole of God's word to his people. Revelation is dependent upon all the scriptures. It's part of all the scriptures. And it relates to and ought to be read in light of all the scriptures. As part of the Bible, we have to read Revelation in light of the Bible. We must remember that this is not merely some titillating work of fanciful imagination tacked on to the end of our scriptures like bonus material or deleted scenes from the latest Marvel comic movie. It's not like, ah, I'm in the mood for something out of the norm. Let's flip to Revelation and see what's happening there. This is Scripture breathed out by God that is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training, and righteousness. The same as all the Scriptures. It's the same Scripture as Genesis. It's the same in the sense of it being Scripture as the Psalms or a Gospel like Matthew or Mark or Luke or even a letter to the Romans. And we need to read Revelation consistently with those other texts as well. Revelation, though, is also not a mysterious puzzle piece that is meant to be chopped up and tossed together with other chopped up bits from other apocalyptic or prophetic works like Daniel or Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, or the letters to the Thessalonians in order that we can create and and publish these far-fetched, bizarrely illustrated, mind-numbingly complex timelines of every minute event to take place until Christ comes. Revelation is not that. It's not this thing that we take and chop up and, 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 and in, in combination with other prophetic books, we chop them all up and throw them in like a toss salad and see what comes out. These efforts at combining all of these prophetic and apocalyptic passages usually end up looking either like an FBI mob boss flowchart or a conspiracy theorist's basement bulletin board. Yarn and strings and pins attached and stretching all over the place and weird charts about who's this and who's what and whatever. And before you know it, we're so deep into the weeds of trying to figure out these timelines that Scripture is really not concerned with detailing that specifically, that we lose sight of the whole thing. None of these passages, Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation, Thessalonians, 
the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25 and 27, none, none of them were, were meant to result in these kinds of strange eschatological conspiracy theories. So as we read Revelation, we're going to keep an eye on the bigger picture, which is why we're only going to take about 20 weeks to look at Revelation. That seems like a long time for some of you. Uh, I've known some pastors who spent like two years in Revelation. So you can say amen to 20 weeks now. Thank you. As we read Revelation, we're going to keep an eye on the bigger picture. We're not going to get too deep down into the weeds of all the symbols because some symbols, some details of Revelation are just details in the Revelation. They're not necessarily specific symbols that we have to go and decode uh, in the world today and try to figure out what in the world they mean. You can get so deep into the weeds of Revelation that you start picking weeds that weren't even there in the first place. We're going to remember that Revelation is a message to the church. And we're going to remember its original purpose. A message to the church to inspire their obedience to the God who saved them and who is coming to make all things new. Rejoice, Christian, as we start Revelation. Christ, our King, is coming. He has spoken in Revelation about what his church can expect in the days between his ascension to the Father after his resurrection from the dead and his return to renew the universe. And his desire is for you to conquer and overcome by persevering in obedience to him. Not to conquer and overcome by taking up the sword and defending with violence the tenets of your faith. By overcoming, conquering, by persevering and being obedient to him, even unto death. But take heart, Christian, if that should be you. If you should die in faith in Christ before he returns, be encouraged. There is blessing of infinite divinely given joy for those who do so. There has been the blessing of divine, uh, infinite joy for 2,000 years of Christians who have died before Christ has returned. This book is a word of joy to them, a word of, of, of encouragement to them. It's a, a word to motiv- that has motivated them to endure travesties at the hands of world governments and people who hate Christ peacefully and lovingly because they know Christ is coming again. Hear his word, dear friend, because blessed are those who hear it and keep it, obey it, because blessed are those who do so. Press on, brothers and sisters. Christ is coming in power and in victory. Friend, you may not know this Jesus that we will begin to look at in detail over the next several weeks. But already today, you've been introduced to the most important thing about who he is. That he is the son of God, who's fully God and fully man, who was born a human being, adding humanity to his divinity in order that he might live a sinless life in your place and die the death that you deserved on a cross. That he was raised from the dead in power and victory over the grave and that he's coming again. The most important things to know about Jesus, dear friend, if you don't know him yet, are revealed to you in just the verses that we've read this morning. Jesus died to bring you freedom from your sin. Before we get any further in Revelation, friend, if you need to know Jesus that way, if you need to be free from sin by the power of his death in your place, come to him in faith. Stop trying to clean yourself up and make yourself acceptable to him. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die so you could get yourself cleaned up to come to him. Jesus gave his life for you so that you could come to him to be cleaned up. Come to Jesus. 
Know Jesus. Trust Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. Because, friend, he's coming again. He's coming again. Let's pray together.